The book of Hebrews is an amazing, tremendous, profound interweaving of the Christian faith with our more ancient Jewish faith. Our text for the morning begins in chapter 7 at verse 23. The author of Hebrews is presenting to us, as he tends to do throughout the letter, what it means to claim Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Beginning at verse 23 of chapter 7. The author says, Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess before you this morning that we, we have just begun to fathom the depths and the riches and the fullness of who Jesus Christ is for us. We pray, God, that by your grace, we are growing daily in both our knowledge of Jesus Christ and our relationship with Jesus Christ. God, we pray pray that you will continue to forgive us for all of those moments and seasons in our lives when we have allowed distractions to take our focus away from you. God, we thank you for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the abundant life that you're offering us through the work and the person and the power of Jesus Christ. We know, God, that you have called us to this place for this time, for just such a time as this, because you have a word for each one of us this morning. God, we pray that we will have ears to hear what you are saying to us today. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Maybe young Walker hasn't figured this out yet, but we have figured this out. We human beings are a strange, peculiar lot. 
If you haven't figured that out, um, you, you need to reflect on that just a little bit. We human beings are a strange, peculiar lot. And we in the Christian community, we have a particular view of human nature that really in many ways forms the basis of all that we believe about God and what God has offered us in Jesus Christ. We human beings are a peculiar lot. Remember, it was Mark Twain who said one time that the human being is the only animal that blushes or needs to. That's who we are. As human beings, particularly those of us who hold the Christian faith dear, we know that our particular view of human nature is this. We hold in tension that great paradox that human beings both have great dignity and great depravity. We know that human beings, each one of us, are capable of great, great good and at the same time capable of great, great evil. That's why we as Christians profess there's never been a human being born, never will be a human being born, that doesn't need Jesus Christ and the grace that's provided for us in Jesus Christ. And that's why many of us in the traditional church, we offer baptism to the least among us because we're declaring that as part of this human family, we all have a nature that is such that we need Jesus Christ. And before we even realize we need Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is busy and active and involved in our lives. That's one of the many things we declare in infant baptism. We need Jesus Every human being needs Jesus, and particularly in our tradition, we believe that every human being can be moved by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ. It's a grace that is a remarkably free grace, and we pray that every human being will come to see his or her need of what's provided for us in Christ. Because of our convictions about human nature and our convictions about God, we, we, have some, we have some serious questions about our particular present culture's desire and tendency to try to teach our children great, great self-confidence. Seems like in the last century, as we raise our kids, it seems like the thing that we want more than anything else for our children is to instill in them great self-confidence. And self-confidence is good as far as it goes, but we in the Christian community, we have a major concern with self-confidence. Because if you look at what self-confidence means, it means reliance on self. And as soon as we realize that self-confidence means reliance on self, we have major issues with that. Because the human being, at least everyone I've ever known, the human being is, is a limited commodity. Our resources are not unlimited. We never have completely the resources that we need to face all of life. Life can be difficult. Life and people in our lives conspire against us to make life rather difficult. And that's why self-confidence will fail us at some point. At some point, we will get to the end of our rope. And hopefully, particularly at those points, we realize that it is not really self-confidence confidence that we need, but it is 
It is Christ's confidence that we need. First and foremost, Christ's confidence. Before we need to worry about self-esteem, we should worry about grace-esteem. And who God with his grace declares us to be. So we need Christ's confidence to make it through life. And the way we get Christ's confidence, the way we grow in Christ's confidence is to learn how to more and more and more focus on Jesus Christ. I read for us a few moments ago from that remarkable New Testament book entitled uh, The Letter to the Hebrews. It's really a sermon to Jewish Christians, probably in Rome. But there's so much in that letter of Hebrews that warrants our close attention, that warrants a profound reflective reading There's a lot in that letter that's rather difficult to understand. And most people, when they go to the letter to the Hebrews, that's usually their first impression. This is some hard stuff to understand. And there is a lot of deep, deep theology in the letter to the Hebrews as you see how Christianity and Judaism gets woven together. But scattered throughout the book of Hebrews, we find some remarkable gems that will help us in the living of our daily life. One of my definitive verses that guides my life is from the book of Hebrews. It's chapter 12, the first two verses. You've probably heard this many times. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, And that's all of those who have gone before us in the faith. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin, and the word the is in the Greek here, the sin. I think think the author of Hebrews is referencing the sin of unbelief. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin of unbelief that clings so closely. And let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. As we run this race, self-confidence will only get us so far. But Christ's confidence will get us to the end of the race. Christ's confidence will allow us to run the race in such a way that we will win the race. Many of you have quoted to me Philippians 4.13. And that is a verse that all of us should memorize. Philippians 4.13 comes from the Apostle Paul's time in prison. And as far as the Apostle Paul knows, when he writes the letter to the Philippians, he, he may be facing execution. And it is in that letter from prison, as Paul is facing execution, that he says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not all things, but all things that Christ calls us to do, Christ can strengthen us to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Perhaps on some of those sleepless nights, when the peace and the comfort of sleep eludes you, you can just lay there and repeat over and over, I can do all things. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ 
it strengthens me. It is Christ's confidence that we need, not self-confidence. Self-confidence is fine for as far as it goes, but it will not get us very far. We need self-confidence. We are continuing in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, looking at the biblical foundation of this remarkable summary of the Christian faith that we call the Apostles' Creed. And we're up to a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says, Jesus, he ascended into heaven and he sits, or sitteth, present tense, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If you will profess that and really believe what you're professing, your sense of Christ's esteem will grow exponentially. If you really will profess that he, Jesus, has ascended into heaven and he sits presently right now in this age at this time at the right hand of God the the Father Almighty, your Christ confidence will help you face anything that life will bring your way. Notice what we profess when we say this. He ascended into heaven. Now I know that in the New Testament there's only three accounts of the narrative of the ascension of Christ. You heard Pastor Ken read one of those just a few moments ago from the book of Acts. You find an account of the ascension of Christ at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the book of Acts, and at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And we know about the ascension because uh, we find it there in those texts. We know that how after the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, he spent 40 days with his followers New Testament tells us this, teaching his followers. And then on the 40th day, he ascended back to the Father in heaven. That's the ascension. And we Christians should make more of the ascension. We we do well with Christmas. We do well with Easter. But somehow the ascension, as important as as it is, somehow doesn't get adequate attention from us. I guess part of it is because Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, always falls on a Thursday. So we don't come back to church and and acknowledge ascension. But it is so critical and crucial to the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus ascended back to the Father there 40 days after his resurrection. And we profess he ascended into heaven. This is where we get heaven into the creed. He ascended into heaven. We, We know, if we've been in the Christian faith for any amount of time, we know what heaven is. Heaven is that realm of reality that is the fullness of God's presence. Heaven is that realm of reality that is the fullness of the presence and glory of Jesus Christ. I have to admit to you that sometimes I... I, 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 This sounds weird. I enjoy obituaries. Do you enjoy obituaries? I, I don't read much of the paper, but I, I read obituaries or I go to the uh, websites of the funeral homes and I read obituaries. And I've learned a lot from reading people's obituary. First and foremost, we need to be thinking about what's going to be written about us in our obituary. But one of the things I've learned when I read obituaries is sometimes we need to be a, a little more precise about our Christian language. Every now and again, I'll run across an obituary and it will say that so-and-so who has died has gone to be with Jesus. Now, that's true. That's true. If the person was someone who knew Jesus, this person has now died and gone to be with Jesus. But every time I see that, 
what I what I'm mindful of is hopefully that person is with Jesus in this life too. Jesus is in this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are with Jesus day by day, moment by moment in this life. So it's not like we have to die in order to be with Jesus. Hopefully we're with Jesus in a powerful and profound way in this life. But then when our physical body fails us, we just are ushered more fully into the presence of Jesus Christ. That's what heaven is. Heaven is not like it is in the Islamic world. Uh, this human and this world and the pleasures of the human world on steroids. That's not what heaven is for us. It's not just the pleasures of this world magnified. Heaven for us is the full presence of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes heaven, heaven for us, the full presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus has ascended to heaven. That's where he is in the fullness of his presence today. He ascended into heaven because that's where we find the fullness of God. And even though the ascension is only related three times in the New Testament, the act, the event of the ascension is only related three times in the New Testament, we read about the ascension in various ways throughout the New Testament. You notice we profess he ascended into heaven and he is presently seated. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I went back and counted. In the New Testament there are 21 references to Jesus Christ presently sitting at the right hand of the Father. So even though the New Testament doesn't present you the event of the ascension over and over and over. It does present to us over and over and over that he is presently right now in this age at this time sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So I suspect that's really the most important part of this profession that he has ascended into heaven and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So we need to understand what it means to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's mentioned 21 times in the New Testament. What does it mean to say Jesus is presently sitting at the right hand of the Father? The right hand is the place of power. Jesus is seated with God at the place of power. The right hand is perhaps how God rules, how God reigns, how God acts in history. So to say that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that is saying that Jesus Christ is sharing the throne with God. Jesus Christ is sharing the almightiness of God. Jesus Christ is the tool, is the instrument by which God exercises his almightiness in the world. So when we profess Sunday after Sunday what the New Testament teaches us that he has ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're talking about the ruling, the reigning, the exalted Lord of the universe. No longer Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus the ascended one who is ruling as the almightiness of God in the world so what is Jesus doing there as he's seated at the right hand of the Father? That's where the book of Hebrews comes in. You notice the book of Hebrews I read for a few moments ago, beginning in the seventh chapter, reaffirms for us this Jesus is the great high priest. 
And the author of Hebrews says he's very unlike all the other high priests. And perhaps you remember the high priest that functioned there in Judaism before the temple was destroyed. The high priest was that priest who once a year, he and he alone, could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to pay for the sins of the Jewish people. And you notice the text says that these former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. We actually know from the New Testament, from Jewish tradition and records, there were 84, probably 84 high priests that came and functioned in the role of high priest for the Jewish community. The author of Hebrews says, we now have a great high priest. That great high priest is Jesus. He will function for all eternity. And verse 25 is an amazing verse. It says that consequently, because we have this great high priest, he, he, Jesus, he is able. He is able. Again, when you have those sleepless nights and and sleep eludes you, perhaps instead of counting sheep, just lay there and repeat to yourself, he is able. He is able. He is able. He is able for all time this text says, for all time to save those who approach God through him. The way I learned it growing up is he is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely, to save perfectly those who approach God through him. Since he, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing today. He's making intercession for us. I hope that you are so important to God. You're on Jesus' prayer list. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he can accomplish that which he seeks because Jesus, as the text says, is holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And that's why his sacrifice is once for all a perfect, complete sacrifice that never needs repeated. And then he says, the main point is this. We have such a high priest, Jesus, who is seated because he's accomplished his work. He's finished his work. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. John Wesley loved to preach the book of Hebrews. When John Wesley dealt with this text, when John Wesley dealt with the concept of Jesus, the great high priest, John Wesley said that that Jesus can save us from all the guilt, all the power, root, and consequence of sin. Not just from the guilt, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power, the root, and the consequence of sin. He can save to the uttermost. Friends, because of what we know to be true about human nature, we know that we, we human beings have a great need for redemption, for salvation, for deliverance. We need to be saved in so many different ways. But we also know that we have a great Savior that can do that for us. It's not that we need a great faith in a Savior. It's that we need faith in a great Savior. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is able to save to the uttermost this high priest of ours. 
enthroned in heaven. So the question before us today is, is he enthroned in your life? Is he ruling there at the center of your life? Is he the organizing principle in your life? Is he the, is he the one upon whom you seek to focus? If you will enthrone Jesus in your life, life will be changed completely in this world and in the world to come. Rick Warren is a great, great pastor of our generation. He has, he has influenced the body of Christ in so many different ways. I remember years ago being greatly influenced by his book, The Purpose Driven Life. I remember being influenced by his book, The Purpose Driven Church. Rick Warren one time said, if you give it to God, the it being your life, your trials, your struggles, your family, your friends, your future, your destiny. If you give it to God, God transforms your test into a testimony, your mess into a message, and your misery into a ministry. He is enthroned in the universe. Is He enthroned in your life? The most reasonable, rational thing we could do as human beings is to invite Jesus to rule and reign in our lives because he is Lord of the universe. You know, I really believe that nothing will ever really work out right for anybody until they embrace Jesus and allow themselves to be embraced by Jesus. I really believe that if we want life to work out well in this world and in the world to come, we have got to enthrone Jesus in our lives and if we enthrone Jesus in our lives then we will find success in living success as God defines success you know if we enthrone Jesus in our lives and only if we enthrone Jesus in our lives then we can say with the Apostle Paul another verse that many of you quote to me from Romans 8 chapter 28 we can say with Paul all things work together for good, not to everyone in general, but to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That is the crowd for whom all things work together for good. Now, all things are not good. All things will not necessarily work together for good by this time next week. There's sin, flesh, and the devil in the world. There's tragedy in the world. There's evil in the world. But because of who we believe Jesus is, because of our Christ's confidence, we know that Jesus overrules all the messes that we make in this world. We know that Jesus superintends over all the chaos of this age. And that's why we know that at some point all things will work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. I told the 8.30 service this morning there are a lot of Methodist preachers and Methodist people in great grief today across western North Carolina because uh, we lost one of our, one of our pastors to a, a tragic, tragic accident on Friday night. We lost a pastor, and some of you may know the name, the Reverend Claude Kaler. And there's so many of us in, in, in grief today over Claude's 
terrible, tragic passing. He, he was a, an avid bicyclist, and he lived up at Lake Junaluska in that area, and he was, he was bicycling on Friday, and he was hit by a truck and killed. And, and Claude has been a tremendous pastor in our annual conference for quite a while. Uh, I still consider Claude to have been a very young man because he's my age. I consider him to have been a young man. And when I got the phone call or the text uh, late on Friday night that Claude had been killed in a motorcycle accident up near Lake Junaluska, I joined many members of this annual conference in grieving Claude's passing, uh, praying for his wife Lori and his children and grandchildren. Let me tell you how much I esteemed Claude Kaler. When uh, I was pastoring at Main Street Church in Kernersville on the and, and the bishop called me to become a district superintendent. And I began that spring to help the cabinet participate with the cabinet, the other district superintendents and the bishop, in making the appointments. I was very honored that at one point in the process, the bishop came to me and said, Jeff, now that you're leaving Main Street Church in Kernersville, uh, who of any pastor in this conference that we could appoint there as pastor, who would you like? us to appoint. I didn't really even have to think very long because, of course, that congregation in Kernsville is like this congregation. I love you a whole lot, and I have a vested interest in this congregation, just like I had a vested interest in the Main Street Church, and as I was leaving, I was so honored that the bishop asked me, who would I like to have followed me as senior pastor at Main Street Church, Kernersville, and I didn't have to think very long because the first name that I knew that I wanted to offer was uh, Reverend Claude Kaler. And he did follow me, made for a great transition. The church didn't skip a beat. He did a wonderful ministry there. The people fell in love with him there. So I know that congregation that I, I love deeply, like I love you, is in deep grief this morning as they gather, because I'm sure they can't think about much other than the death of uh, their previous pastor, Claude Kaler. He's been gone a few years from there and was living up in the Lake Junaluska area when the accident happened Friday night. But I know Claude well enough. I know Lori well enough. I, know, I knew Claude's mother and dad before they passed away. He was a Methodist preacher. I know Lori's mother... I know that family well enough to know that they believe that Jesus Christ lives, Jesus Christ rules, Jesus Christ reigns, and that Jesus Christ is working God's purposes out in history, and that we know that all things work together for good eventually. Even the bad, the tragic, the sad, the evil, all things work together for good eventually to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose because we believe that Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven and He is seated in that place of power and is now the almightiness of God at work in the world. I invite you to pray with me as, um, as, as we pray together. Uh, we want to ask the Spirit to finish this message this morning. And also we'll invite you to, to pray for the people across this annual conference in churches and clergy colleagues who are grieving uh, the tragic death of Claude.
Would you pray with me?